This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This is a recording of Aristotle's Poetics, translated by Ingram Bywater, with a preface by Gilbert Murray, and read to you by Bob Foster. All Greek words I take my best shot at, and apologize for any... Um, chewing up of Greek words for those Greek scholars out there. So I will start with chapter 1. Aristotle and the Art of Poetry Our subject being poetry, I propose to speak not only of the art in general, but also of its species and their respective capacities, of the structure of plot required for a good poem, of the number and nature of the constituent parts of a poem, and likewise of any other matters in the same line of inquiry. Let us follow the natural order and begin with the primary facts. Epic poetry and tragedy, as also comedy, dithyrambic poetry and most flute-playing and lyre-playing, are all viewed as a whole modes of imitation. But at the same time they differ from one another in three ways, either by a difference of kind in their means, or by differences in the objects, or in the manner of their imitations. 1. Just as form and color are used as means by some who, whether by art or constant practice, imitate and portray many things by their aid, and the voices used by others, so also in the above-mentioned group of arts, the means with them as a whole are rhythm, language, and harmony, used, however, either singly or in certain combinations. A combination of rhythm and harmony alone is the means in flute-playing and lyre-playing, and any other arts there may be of the same description, for example, imitative piping. Rhythm alone, without harmony, is the means in the dancer's imitations, for even he, by the rhythms of his attitudes, may represent men's characters, as well as what they do and suffer. There is further an art which imitates by language alone, without harmony, in prose or in verse, and if in verse, either in some one or in a plurality of meters. This form of imitation is to this day without a name. We have no common name for a mime of Sophron, the author Sophron, or Xenarchus, and a Socratic conversation, and we should still be without one even if the imitation in the two instances were in trimeters or elegiacs, elegiacs or some other kind of verse, though it is the way with people to tack on poet to the name of a meter, and talk of elegiac poets and epic poets, thinking that they call them uh, poets not by reason of the imitative nature of their work, but indiscriminately by reason of the meter they write in. Even if a theory of medicine or physical philosophy be put forth in a metrical form, it is usual to describe the writer in this way. Homer and Empedocles, however, have really nothing in common apart from their meter, so that if the one is to be called a poet, the other should be termed a physicist rather than a poet. We should be in the same position also if the imitation in these instances were in all the meters, like the centaur, a rhapsody in the medley of all meters, of Caramond 
and Caraman one has to recognize as a poet. So much then as to these arts. There are, lastly, certain other arts which combine all the means enumerated rhythm, melody, and verse. For example, dithyrambic and gnomic poetry, N-O-M-I-C, tragedy and comedy. With this difference, however, that the three kinds of means are in some of them all employed together, and in others brought in separately, one after the other. These elements of difference in the above arts I term the means of their imitation. Chapter 2 The objects the imitator represents are actions, with agents who are necessarily either good men or bad, the diversities of human character being nearly always derivative from this primary distinction, since the line between virtue and vice is one dividing the whole of mankind. It follows, therefore, that the agents represented must be either above our own level of goodness, or beneath it, or just such as we are in the same way as, with the painters, the personages of Polynotus are better than we are, those of Poisson, worse, and those of Dionysius, just like ourselves. It is clear that uh, each of the above-mentioned arts will admit of these differences, and that it will become a separate art by representing objects with this point of difference. Even in dancing, flute-playing, and lyre-playing, such diversities are possible, and they are also possible in the nameless art that uses language, prose, or verse without harmony, as its means. Homer's personages, for instance, are better than we are. Cleophon's personages are on our own level, and those of Hegemon of Thassos, the first writer of Parodies, P-A-R-O-D-I-E-S, it's in parody, and Nicocaris, the author of the Diliad, are beneath it. The same is true of the Dithyram and the Gnome. The personages may be presented in them with the difference exemplified in the blank of blank, and Argus, and in the Cyclopses of Timotheus and Philoxenus. This difference it is that distinguishes tragedy and comedy also. The one would make its personages worse, and the other better, than the men of the present day. Chapter 3. A third difference in these arts is in the manner in which each kind of object is represented. Given both the same means and the same kind of object for imitation, one may either 1. speak at one moment in narrative, and at another in an assumed character, as Homer does, or 2. one may remain the same throughout without any such change, or 3. the imitators may represent the whole story dramatically as though they were actually doing the things described. As we said at the beginning, therefore, the differences in the imitation of these arts come under three heads, their means, their objects, and their manner. So that as an imitator, Sophocles will be on one side akin to Homer, both portraying good men, and on another to Aristophanes, since both present their personages as acting and doing. This, in fact, according to some, is the reason for plays being termed dramas, because in a play the personages act the story. Hence, too, both tragedy and comedy are claimed by the Dorians as their discoveries. 
comedy by the Megarians, by those in Greece, as having arisen when Megara became a democracy, and by the Sicilian Megarians, on the ground that the poet Epicharmus was of their country, and a good deal earlier than Chionides and Magnes. Even tragedy also is claimed by certain of the Peloponnesian Dorians. In support of this claim, they point to the words comedy and drama. Their word for the outlying hamlets, they say, is komai, C-O-M-A-E, whereas Athenians call them dimmies, D-E-M-E-S, thus assuming that comedians got the name uh, not from their komau, C-O-M-O-E, or revels, but from their strolling from hamlet to hamlet, from hamlet to hamlet, lack of appreciation keeping them out of the city. Their word also for to act, they say, is dran, D-R-A-N, whereas Athenians use pratin, P-R-A-T-T-E-I-N. So much, then, as to the number and nature of the points of difference in the imitation of these arts. <laughs>